heard, as I've heard, so many of the prophets saying that 2004 is a particular year. Have you heard that? Yes. You've heard all kinds of slogans and, and we're moving now into the fall. It's not just because of the election in November, but that's certainly a big factor here. Yes. And um, I began to ask God, I said, I said, why 2004? And he, this is what he said to me. He took me, and I, it's not my subject this weekend, but I'm just going to touch on it. What you find is that in Exodus 12, the first time that the Passover was celebrated, it was the, the children of Israel who'd been in captivity in Egypt for precisely 430 years. And then suddenly God told them to take a lamb for every family and to sacrifice that perfect lamb, put the blood on the doorpost of the house and then that night the avenging angel came but wherever the blood was that family wasn't touched and in a moment a, a, a nation that had been in bondage for 430 years was suddenly free yes. and the power of all of Egypt and the power of the prince of Egypt was, was over and as you read that passage, which I'm not going to... I better stay back here by the sound. I'll mess up the sound. I want to sort of get inside you. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a wandering preacher. But, but um, if you go through that passage, and I suggest you might like to read that just over the next few days, you'll find that the moment they, that night, they suddenly turned from a rabble of slaves to an army. Amen. They were immediately called the army of the Lord. Immediately. And the second thing that happened was that they were poor slaves and then that night the Egyptians pressed vast amounts of gold and silver and their economic situation immediately changed. The third thing was that they were told to, to eat the Passover in haste and to eat it clothed and be ready for a journey because they were going somewhere. And the journey that they were going on was that they were going to possess the possessions that God had promised Abraham all those years before. So just remember those three things. It was the end of slavery, end of bondage to everything and anything. They were transformed overnight from a rabble of slaves to, to an army which was now dressed, prepared, well equipped financially to go and possess their possessions. Now the trouble was that in the heart of those people there wasn't a heart for war. Although God kept calling them the army of the Lord and they made army noises when it came to the actual prospect of facing enemy and conquering them, they suddenly chickened out and said, you know, we don't want to go to war. In fact, we'd rather go back and live in Egypt. Yeah. Yeah. Amen? Yeah. So God then gave them, he gave them a two-year period of the wilderness or to thinking that will cure them. That I'm sure anybody with any sense would rather die in battle than die in the wilderness. But unfortunately, the people of God still refused to go to war. So at Kadesh Barnea, two years later, God said, right, okay, this whole generation, you're going to die in the wilderness. This is the end. This is your last chance. And I'm going to wait until that whole generation dies out. Then I'm going to take another generation. The children that you said would die if we went to war. I'm telling you, they'll die if you don't go to war. And this generation that you said would die... If you went to war, I'm going to take that generation, I'm going to make that generation into the occupying army that you were supposed to be. Yes. Okay? And you read about this in, in, in the end of, uh, of uh, 
Exodus 12, then you go in into Deuteronomy and you find that, that Moses is looking back over those 38 years and said the trouble was that you, you wouldn't fight, you wouldn't fight. You find it comes again and again in the first few chapters of Deuteronomy. You wouldn't go to war, you wouldn't fight. So God said, right, then I'm going to wait until every one of these so-called warriors that won't fight. How can you be called a warrior if you won't fight? I'm going to wait for this whole generation of people that made up yeah. make war noises but would never go to war he's saying wait till they die and then I'm going to take the next generation with a new leader Joshua and they're going to go over and occupy the land yeah. Yeah. right here's the point that I'm coming to I'm, I, I, I think tomorrow morning I, I've got it on my computer I will bring all the documentation that I'm referring to because the Lord said to me he said this is the reason why it's the year 2004 and it's going to just carry on through to the to the Easter of 2005, but this is a very critical period in the history of the United States of America. Now, two years ago, th three years ago now, I'm sorry, um, I'd come to America in the year 1991. I, it's the only time in my life that I ever heard the audible voice of God. I was passing through from New Zealand back to Britain and I agreed to stop off and preached some meetings with, uh, with Rick Godwin in San Antonio, Texas and I didn't have a particular heart or concern for America. My passion was Africa, India and at that time communist Europe and I had plenty, more than enough to do. But I agreed to just stop off on my way back from New Zealand and preach in this church and in my hotel room as I sh just shut the door and got ready for the first evening meeting on Thursday night, God came into my room in a way that I'd never experienced before and he spoke to me audibly, which I'd never ever ever had happened before or since. And I believe it, it was necessary for me to have such a dramatic visitation of God because it wasn't even in my thinking. In fact, I said, I don't want to go to America, it's full of preachers and teachers already. I don't waste my time there, I'd rather go to other places. But, but God said, yeah, America's full of teachers and preachers but it doesn't have many fathers. He said, I'm calling you to this nation to be a father of, uh, and to be a father to a generation that's going to rise up and be what their fathers refused to be. Amen. And so that's how I came to this nation. I became a green card holder. I got a permanent residence permit within six weeks, which was a miracle. I never realized then it was a miracle, but it was. And, and I, I could have stayed here for the rest of my life freely working with a, with a resident alien card but in the year 2000 just as, he, as I moved into the year 2000 God spoke to me again and, and, and he gave me a word because I always pray every, every year for a word from God for that year and this year he didn't give me a word until the middle of 2000 he said the reason I held back was because it's not just for this year it's for the first years of the new millennium and this is what he said to me he said that when Jesus began his ministry, you remember he quoted from Isaiah 61. I'm assuming you can follow me. I'm going very quickly, but I just want to set some quick background here. And he quoted Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to have wonderful charismatic meetings with my friend. Is <laughs> that so what it says? He's upon me to... to the Spirit always upon me because he, he, has, he has sent me to, to, to heal the brokenhearted. And what's the first line? To, to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to set up the captives, to open prison doors, to loose those that are bound. 
and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he stops right in the middle of a sentence. I better get back here because it wrecks the sound. And then he said, in the, in the synagogue, he said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your ears. But he didn't complete the sentence. He knew when to begin and he knew when to stop. If you go on in that passage of scripture, the next phrase is, and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, it's not God's vengeance against sinners. If you go on reading it, it's vengeance against the works of Satan upon this earth. It's not destructive, it's constructive. Haggai prophesied that, that at the end of the age, God would shake all nations... But the purpose was to bring them to the desire of all nations. And again, it's not destructive, it was redemptive shaking. It's to, not to destroy nations, but to save them. If you go through Isaiah 61, reading down to verse 9, you'll find that the result of this anger is that those who are mourning, those who are in sorrow, if you like the intercessors, who are crying out for their nation, their sorrow is suddenly going to be turned to joy. Their, their spirit of heaviness is going to be transformed into garments of praise. In other words, God is going to so answer their prayers, they're going to go crazy with delight. Yes. Then it goes on to promise that, that one of the things God will do is that he will, he will repair the ruined cities. Yes. The desolation of many generations. In other words, there's going to be an incredible restoration when God's anger is let loose because the anger is not being let loose against lost sinners. The anger is being let loose against the works of Satan. And this is what God said to me in the beginning of this new millennium. He said, the time has come. Alan, he said, the time has come to complete the sentence. And then he said to me, and I felt my hair standing on end, he said to me, he said, the church has never seen me angry before. You watch. I'll never forget those words. He said, the church has never seen me angry before. You watch. Now, since that day, I've had a number of confirming prophecies of, of uh, so much being added to this that I know that wasn't, you know, that, that was the real word of God. So let's come back to the year 2004. And so the Lord said to me, I said, well, why the year 2004? Why are you going to do it in the end of 2004 into the 2005? Why is this a particular year? He said to me, he said, go back 38 years. If you re- let's just turn to one, one verse, if you wouldn't mind, in Deuteronomy. Just, uh, and I, you're going to have to do a lot of homework to fill in all the gaps. But, but uh, that's why I have schools of the word. Because I've got so much to say, it takes a week. (laughs) Alright, come to verse 14 of Deuteronomy chapter 2. Here is Moses reviewing that period in the wilderness. Verse 14, And the time we took to come from Kadesh Barnea until we crossed over the valley of Zarid was 38 years until all the generation of the men of war was consumed. Verse 16, so it was when all the men of war had finally perished among the people that the Lord spoke to me saying, this day you are to cross over at Er, the boundary of Moab. In other words, he was waiting for that generation to die out. So I went back and began to research the United States of America 38 years ago. I was staggered at what I found. 
Now, I'm not going to share it with you tonight because it will take a whole session, but you need to know this. Every basic pillar of our society was attacked between the years 1963 and 1968 and, and there was new forces came to work on this nation to destroy every godly pillar of our society. For example, in 1963, one atheistic woman objected to her son having to listen to scripture being read and prayers being said in school. She went to court, obtained a high, a, a high court a federal court judgment which stopped prayer in all our schools all over our nation and there wasn't one single Christian that got up and said we're going to fight this now now that's the shame now if you do look at the statistics from 1963 to this present day of what's happened in our schools you can see the terrible devastating effect of that one thing alone I'm going to show you that every, every facet of our society was attacked between 63 and 68 and most of them came to crisis in 1966, 38 years ago. And the terrible thing is there's no record of any movement or any activity on the part of any Christian, hardly at all, to get up, rise up and try and do something about it. In the year 1965, God brought his answer. He began the charismatic movement. This was fiercely opposed by the Pentecostals. Come on, this is the truth now. It was fiercely opposed by every major denomination in America, and it sort of fizzled out, sidetracked into all kinds of weird and peculiar things, and it never ever became the fighting force that God intended it to be. Now that's my generation. I'm like a sort of a, a Joshua or a Caleb. And I, and I repent for my, my generation and its total passivity and its weak kneed jellyfish attitude to, to needing this nation to go to war and change things. Amen. Now at last we're beginning to wake up. Amen. God's raising up a new generation. And it's the 30s and the 40s, primarily, that are saying, we can't stand one year on this stupid Christian thing called church. It's just like a wilderness going round and round in circles, going nowhere. We want to do something. We want to change our nation. There's, there's a new movement coming. It's the same in Eastern Europe. You just go to Eastern Europe. You meet these young people who've been brought up in communism, but now they've found Jesus. They don't want to mess about playing church. Now, the driving force for all this is developing the right kind of prayer. That's going to be my focus. But I want you to see that we're not having prayer meetings to have other occasions just to enjoy his presence, because even that can get perverted. When they try to get Jesus to come and come apart and just be a blessing, he would only ever leave the battlefield for two days at a time, then he got back into the fight. Wow. Listen to me. Wow. At the beginning of his ministry, he fought and won one battle with the devil, which required a 40-day fast. You never ever read him, and you're never doing the same thing again. He would withdraw for two days, be powerfully re-empowered by his father, back into the battle again. And from, from the moment he began his ministry to the moment he breathed his last breath on the cross, he was a warrior. Amen? Amen? But it was, it was prayer-driven. 
And you find he, he had an incredible prayer life, but it wasn't withdraw into a monastery kind of prayer life. Yes. It was getting empowered and equipped to stay in the battle kind of prayer yes. life. Yes. Yes. Can you hear what I'm saying? Yes. In the year 2000, God told me to become an American citizen. Now, for the, a, Brit, a Brit, that's the ultimate sacrifice. <laughs> he said, it's not enough to be a green card holder, you've got to become an American. I said, well, Lord, why do I need to do that? And he gave me two reasons. Number one is identification. Because when I first came to this nation, I wasn't sure it was a five or ten year period and then go back to Britain and retire. But God said, no, you're never going back to Britain. You're, you're going to be in battle till the day you die. But he said, you're going to die here. He said, what I called you into is, is literally the rest of your life work. And so he said, the first reason that you need to become an American is for identification. And then he gave me the second reason. He said that in the days that lie ahead, to unashamedly preach the gospel of the kingdom will be perceived by many as political activism. When you start talking about homosexuality, when you start talking about abortion, when you start dealing with all the moral issues which are called political issues, if you talk about spiritual things which are really, uh, they're called political things and therefore the church is not supposed to say anything. But, but like Peter, I can't keep silent. Amen. 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 So he said, if you preach in the days that are coming on, he said, if you preach the gospel of the kingdom fearlessly, but lovingly and graciously. You see, you see I do not hate homosexuals. I love them enough to want them to be delivered. I don't hate Muslims. I love Muslims enough to want them to be saved. See, I don't hate cancer patients, but I love them enough to, to hate the cancer spirit that's destroying them. I hate the devil that's doing the work, but I love the people that are, are the victims of that activity. So this is not hate preaching. But it's passionate preaching. With a passion to see these wicked demonic things broken and the people delivered from their power. And the Lord said to me, he said, if you preach the gospel of the kingdom, without fear or compromise he said it will be, be perceived to be political activism he said if you are a green card holder they can throw you out the country he said but if you are an American all they can do is to throw you into jail now I'm serious I'm not this is not fun this I'm serious about it I've weighed all this and I'm said am I prepared not looking for trouble, not seeking that, but am I prepared to go to jail rather than compromise on the truth? And I want to tell you, I'm prepared to do that for the United States of America. Amen. What about you? Amen. When I became an American, I spent the next several weeks researching this nation, and I probably know more American history than many of you sitting here. I spent weeks in Washington, I spent weeks in Pennsylvania, and I've researched the roots and origin of this nation, and I've traced its history, and I've seen the spiritual battle, and, and I've also seen God's spiritual purpose for this nation. Amen. It's a remarkable nation because it's of so many different ethnicities. You sit on a plane, as I often do, watch all the people come on board, and there's every kind of ethnicity, and they're all Americans. 
I think it's fantastic, don't you? And, and, and we're called to model something to the world, to be truly one nation under God. And then by the power of our resources to bless the world with a powerful evangelistic thrust to bring Jesus to every nation. Now that's what, that's why, that's what we're for. We're not here just to retreat into some kind of you know, secluded bubble of comfort and hope the rest of the world will go away. Amen? So that's where I'm going. Now I want us to come now, if you will, to what I'm going to start preaching about. Because I want to talk about the kind of prayer life that transforms a nation. That's my subject for the weekend. The kind of prayer life that transforms a nation. It's been my privilege to be in, involved with Dr. David Yonggi Cho. You've probably all heard of him. But there was a time in 1958 when he was a pastor with five people. His nation had been devastated by 40 years of Japanese occupation, followed by uh, more than a decade of, of communism, which had ruined the nation economically, ruined it in every way. And out of the tattered ruins of that nation, this man got, got saved and got hold of God and began to see that the God he had come to know was big enough to transform him and to transform his nation. The population of South Korea is about 40 million people and it is a nation that's rapidly becoming the first nation of any size where it has a Christian majority of on-fire born-again spiritual believers. <clears throat> he started with five people and two of them had to come because one was his mother-in-law and, and the other was his wife. So just two people came voluntarily. And from that little seed, which obviously I have not time to tell the whole story, he's now got a church which is approaching, it has over 800,000 committed members. He's planted out more than 6,000 churches across Korea and around the world. South Korea as a nation today is sending out more missionaries per capita than even the United States of America. It is the leading mission nation in the world right now. And it's gone from where it was to where it is now in my lifetime. I've watched it happen. I got saved in 1958. And, and I've watched this transformation. The, and, and it's not only it's changed the whole nation spiritually, it's changed the whole nation uh, politically, it's changed the whole nation economically. In the year 1960 something, I forget which year it was, 65 or 68, the average income per capita in South Korea was $50 per, per, per person. I mean, sorry, per family, I mean, not per capita. $50 per family. It was a very, very poor third world nation. When I f went and spent some time there, the first time it was in the late 70s, and the income had risen to just over 200 US dollars per family. Still wow. very poor. When I went back again in the early 90s, it had risen to 1,000 US dollars per family. And just as, as we turned into the new millennium, the average income of South Korea is now just over 2,000 US dollars per family. It's rapidly catching up with the US. Now, the reason is because even in their poverty, they were great givers. My wife was traveling once because she was... In fact, Yonggi chose so 
fell in love with her in the right kind of way, you know, as an as a incredible ministry, that he tried to hire us to join his staff, but we never felt it was God's will. But she went a number of times and wrote a fantastic book about that church. And uh, as a result, he was very keen to get her on, on, our star, on his staff, and he was prepared to have me along with the package. <laughs> but she was travelling back from, from Seoul, and she was going, for some reason, through Paris, on the way back to, to Britain, I assume, at the time. And she was sitting between two Buddhist businessmen who were coming to Europe to do business. They were both um, garment manufacturers. They were sitting either side of her, and, it's, and she got talking to them, and obviously trying to lead them to the Lord, and they both told her that their wives had become converted and were now on fire Christians, part of Yong Cho's church. And they said, you know, we've been giving them money to give to, to their God, Jesus, and he said, it's absolutely transforming our businesses. <laughs> so here are, here are two Buddhist businessmen who are tapping into the resources of the kingdom, and yet not converted. <laughs> So she said, well, you, you must... Be. And they said, well, we, we keep giving this money to our wives and they give it to, to, to Jesus and then our businesses get blessed. It's, it's fantastic how, how our economy is being transformed because we're giving to the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, I'd like you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Let's just, just remember that in Matthew chapter 4, you there? The end of Matthew chapter 3, Jesus is baptized. In the beginning of Matthew 4, he goes out into the wilderness to fight and win the battle with the devil. Amen? And then he steps out into his ministry. We read at the end of chapter 4, just come there, verse 24, Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee, from Decapolis, which is the other side of Jordan, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. So there's a vast, powerful move begins and it's characterized by a tremendous flow of mighty signs and wonders and miracles. I want time to talk about that sometime this weekend. Because I believe that God's going to break out on this nation with a whole new powerful visitation of signs and wonders and miracles. And that's going to happen because of the prayer. Then we read in chapter 5, verse 1, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, and when he, had seated, when he was seated, the word is cathedra, when he had sat down with power and with authority, his disciples came to him. And then he opened his mouth and taught them. And we have this famous teaching, which we have come today to call the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 5, he deals with all the attitudes which are necessary in the kingdom. They're the attitudes we have to be. Amen. Amen. And I won't deal with them tonight because I haven't got time for all this stuff. But these have got to be built into us. Yes. As you go on through chapter 5, he then starts to make it quite clear that he is the definitive word. And he can even take what Moses said and adjust it to make it appropriate for the Amen. kingdom. Amen. Under Moses' law, which was a temporary expedient to minimize sin, 
As long as your outward behavior was okay, you were okay before the law. But in the kingdom, you've got to be right inside. It's not enough to do anything physically wrong, sexually. You mustn't even think that way. It's not enough to be violent on the outside and hurt somebody or even kill somebody. You mustn't even have a murderous heart. Okay? So in the kingdom, it's what we are on the inside that, that governs us, not what we manage to manufacture temporarily in a religious meeting on the outside. Amen. Then we come to chapter 6, which is where I want to go. In chapter 6, Jesus deals with three things. He deals with the right way to give, yes. the right way to pray, yes. and the right way to fast. He deals with those three things. Yes. Now, because he's dealing with a religious community, unfortunately, they've already re- learned the wrong way. Now when I first got saved, I got saved, I won't go into the whole story, it won't be time. I got saved dramatically out of scientific atheism. But I had a praying grandmother who was converted in the Welsh Revival. And and she got me with her prayers. She told me before she died, she said, when I was a rabid anti-Christian atheist who thought Christians were stupid and I had no time for these silly people. She said, she said, I've been praying and Jesus, and Jesus has promised me he's going to save you and you're going to serve him. I thought she was absolutely nuts. She died, but her prayers came to pass, suddenly dramatically. I was lecturing in a, in, a, in a British university, full of arrogant intellectual pride, and I was accidentally led to Christ by two Mormons. That's what happened to me. They got, I never went to a Christian meeting until after I was saved. They got me reading this Bible that I didn't believe in. And what they said so irritated me, I decided to read more of this Bible I didn't believe in. Just to show them that they weren't even teaching the Bible properly. As I began to read the Bible to prove the Mormons couldn't even teach the Bible properly, these stupid religious people, if they're going to teach the Bible, at least they ought to do it properly. Even as atheists, I can do a better job than them. So in this arrogant, critical attitude, I start to read the Bible and the power of God convicts me and I get converted. Now, that, that tells me two things. Anybody can get saved. And secondly, the Bible's powerful whether people believe in it or not. Don't be afraid to use the Bible on people who don't believe. See, if I come to my brother in the front here with a sword, he says, don't use that sword on me, I don't believe in swords. If I stick it into him, it still has its devastating effect. Amen? Amen. So I got powerfully converted. Now, why did I say all that? Yeah, that's right. When I was first saved, I th- and I just read the Bible. I'd never been to a Christian meeting, never been, not, not since I was a little kid of 13. I didn't remember what it was like, and I didn't want to remember what it was like. So I thought, well, this is it. So, so, so I began to behave like the Bible. And, and uh, when my wife's sister came to us, desperately ill from a condition that she could not be cured from, we prayed for her. She was instantly healed. I thought that was normal Christianity. I never knew it was strange to do that. <laughs> 
we were going to have an evangelistic meeting. We, we'd, we'd hired a big public hall. We'd got one of these Billy Graham films that were very popular at that time. And then one of these terrible English fogs dropped like a thick piece soup. You couldn't even see your hand in front of your face. So no one's going to be able to come. So I stood on, on the doorway. I re- it never happens. If the, if the fog passes through the heat of the day, it always gets worse at night. So this was four o'clock in the afternoon and it was thick, 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 thick pea soup salt fog. And I stood in the doorway of the, of the hall and I rebuked it in Jesus' name. In 20 minutes it disappeared and I thought that was normal Christianity. <laughs> then I started going to church. <laughs> I went to this good old evangelical Baptist church and within years they'd trained me in chronic Baptist unbelief. <laughs> now that's the truth. And I want you to recognize this because this could be where you are. Now, it took God quite a few years to undo what Jesus is talking about here. Because when he teaches us how to, he says, the first, he said, look, because I'm dealing with religious people, to teach you how to pray properly, I've got to teach you, first of all, how not to pray. While I was in the Baptist church in Bombay, in India, that's when God visited me and a few other people and when I got filled with the Holy Spirit. I, up to that time, I believed that God was a gentleman. <laughs> I believed he was an English gentleman. <laughs> and that God would never do anything unseemly. I got the shock of my life when God came. It terrified me and made me angry, just like you read about David. When God came, it made him angry, it made him terrified at the same time. And those first three months of learning to actually have God in the meetings, which is a strange experience for a Baptist church. Oh, come on, I'm getting real about this. We, we do religion real good, but when the real mighty presence of God comes and he wants to be in charge, that's something that we're not used to. It took me three months to become compatible with God. And, it, and it, it was a tremendous learning process. Then I went back to Britain on a, short, on a short furlough, and it was during this time that something else happened. I agreed during these six to nine months to take on a, the pastor of a little church. And as I was passing this little church and visiting churches, um, a woman came to me, and, or called me first of all, and she said that she just had some devastating news. Could I come round to her house immediately? And this woman was a woman in her mid-40s. I think she was 47 years of age at the time. And what had happened apparently was that previously, over the past year or so, she had suddenly started to grow. She'd grown in height more than one inch. Her hands had got several sizes larger. Her feet had got several sizes larger. And now her eyesight was being affected and she was feeling unsteady on her feet. She'd just gone to consultants in London and they diagnosed that there was a tumour pressing on her pituitary gland and it was causing a te- it messed up all her hormones and it was causing a teenage spurt in her mid-40s she was behaving like a 14 year old girl when she was actually 43, 45 years of age but it was a malignant tumour that, that they said was going to kill her and it was so, so in, entwined in the brain there they couldn't get at it and they said that there's nothing we can do except try and slow it down maybe with a bit of radiation therapy so it was a pretty serious prognosis and so when she told me this news and I forgot one thing as I was driving to see this woman I felt this strange feeling in my arms which I never ever felt in my life before 
I was this place, it feels, it feels weird, sort of, it, it's, it's tingling, and it feels ever so heavy. And as I was driving to a house, I thought, this weird feeling in my arms, I don't know what it is, it's like a, a heavy sort of tingling. And I got to her house and she told me this story, and I felt you know, pastoral compassion, you know what I mean? See, it's one thing to pray prayers of compassion, it's another thing to pray prayers of, of faith or power. Amen. As I reached out my hand, I, I felt, oh my, what dreadful news. And I wanted to comfort her. For what do you pray for someone when they've got those sort of devastating news and you're not even, you only know about, well, Lord, heal her if it be thy will kind of prayers. You know that sort of stuff? That's right, that's right. Yeah, come on. Come on. As I laid my hands on this woman, the power of God hit her and she went over backwards on the floor. I'd never ever seen this before. I, I said, what happened? <laughs> And she, she lay on the floor, and then after a few moments, she said, she said, I felt myself shrink. And so I eventually helped her off the floor, and she said, she said, my legs feel absolutely steady. She said, my eyesight's perfect. She went and got the shoes that she couldn't wear anymore. And they fitted her feet perfectly. In a, in a fraction of a second, she shrunk back to her right side. Now this woman is still alive in her 80s, absolutely fit. This happened a long, long time ago. But here's the point of my story. As I sat there looking, uh, I, I sort of went to a chair and I sat down. And this is what I heard myself say. I'd felt the power go through my arms. I'd seen with my own eyes this incredible miracle. But this is what came out of my mouth. This is wonderful, but I can't believe it's happened. That's what I said. I can't believe it's happened. And I understood for the first time that scripture which says that when Jesus appeared to his disciples, it said, after he, after he was risen from the dead, it says, they believed not for joy. And I knew exactly what that scripture means, because that's exactly where I was. I'd seen it with my own eyes, I felt the power go through my body, and yet I couldn't believe, because it was outside my experience, so this sort of thing's happened. And I discovered that in my heart is what the Bible calls in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12. It says, take care, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. In turning away from the living God. And I realized, I said, my God, why can't I believe? What's the matter with me? And unbelief is far worse than not having faith. See, when Jesus came to his own hometown, in Mark chapter 6 of Nazareth, where he grew up as a boy, they'd known Jesus for 30 years, but they'd never seen him do a miracle. So they were totally familiar with the non-powerful Jesus. But the Jesus with power was a stranger to them. That's true of most church-going people in America. If you've been going to church all your life, how many great fantastic miracles have you seen? How often do they happen in your church? And even in the Sunday school, we teach our kids about the miracles, but they're little allegories of spiritual truth. We never say, listen guys, this really happened. Why isn't it happening now? So Jesus could do no great work there. Why? because of their unbelief and he, he marveled at their unbelief now, 
Beloved, we don't want to make Jesus marvel this way. Reinhard Bonnke is a good friend of mine if, and my daughter worked with him for him for a number of years. I've been with him in crusades in Africa. I've done conferences together with him. I don't, you know, and I've seen the power of God when God's working through him in Africa. I've also been with Reinhard Bonnke in London, England. Not a darn thing would happen. Same man, but a different environment. Now, England's worse than America, but America isn't good, beloved. And I believe one of the things we've got to learn is to, is to develop the kind of prayer life which breaks this wretched unbelief and starts to see the breakthrough in signs and wonders and miracles. Because that's how Jesus began. I'm seeing it happen slowly and painfully. In two years ago in America, an anointing came upon me for cancer. And if anybody's got cancer, bring them somehow to these meetings. They will get healed. If you can't bring them, bring a cloth. I'll pray over it, anoint it with oil. You take it to that person, they're going to get healed. I'm not, it's just true. It's just a fact. And this came on me two years ago. And God said to me, he said, you're going to begin to see creative miracles in America. It's just beginning to happen. Just in the last, just in the last few months. Now, if we learn to, pre see, because I'm being backed by a prayer ministry in San Antonio, and I'm flowing out of the anointing of that prayer ministry. And my passion is to see at least that here, and if you go even further, it'll be a provocation to us to get on with it even faster. But I was in a, in a, um, where was this? Just, just come. It wasn't a very big town, it wasn't a very big meeting. But this woman came forward and she was, and I'd mentioned about, you know, people being in bondage to cigarettes and how it's demons which you cast out. And so she came forward, she just been saved and she'd come from some pretty horrendous background and she was reeking of cigarette smoke and, you know, I don't hate, I love it, I love her but not the smell if you understand what I mean. And I'm not judgmental, please don't think that, anything like that, but, I, but she said, oh, I so long to be free from this bondage. I said, great. But she came forward, she was on crutches, she had a, a sort of plastic cast round one leg, so it was totally immobilized, and the other one had a, had a, a, a support over her knee, and she came forward like this, you see. I said, well, what, what's the matter with you? She said, I've got the most extreme form of arthritis, and my knee joints have already been destroyed. She said, in fact, I'm going next Wednesday for, for, for knee replacement surgery on this leg, and the other one they're going to do, you know, when I've recovered from the first one. And she said, all my body is racked with pain, I'm on, um, what's those particular pain-killing injections? Um, cortisone injection and, and, and she said even that's not helping I just, I'm just in agonizing pain all the time so I said well look, let's deal with the smoking and, and we did and it came out but then I said well why leave it there so I prayed for her I, I mean I, I spoke to that physical condition and the power of God hit her she went over on her back she got up and she began running around the meeting she, she got off all these Plastic, not, these plastic equivalents of plaster casts. I don't know how to describe. She got all this stuff off her, all these rubber and plastic and straps and and all. And she ran around. And she said, "Listen to my knee." She said, "It's not been like this for 30 years." Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. 
totally healed. Had a man come forward, both kidneys had failed, and he was on three times a week dialysis, and he was, he was, uh, they were desperately trying to find a kidney. He said, probably you've got two weeks to live if we can't find a kidney. And I just, I said, I don't know why I did this, but I just listened to the voice of God. I said, look, here's a cloth. I'm doing, I said, put it on your back, over your kidneys, wear it for three days. And I noticed at the end of three days, both kidneys were working perfectly. And he, he doesn't need, see, this is America. And if this really takes off, I tell you, the power of God is going to break into our society at every level. Now, if you read Matthew, that's how Jesus began his ministry. And if you go to Luke, which we will do tomorrow morning, you'll find that, that he, was, he was a man of prayer before the anointing came upon him. And he was a man of prayer even more after the anointing came upon him. That miraculous life was sustained by a life of prayer. Now that's where I want to go in these couple of days. That's where I want to take you. To that kind of praying in Jesus' name. And I could, I, mean, I was in, a, where was this? Another, this was in Tennessee. In this place, it, it was, uh, just, I'll think of the name in a minute. It was in Tennessee. And the pastor said to me, he said, look, he said, uh, um, I'm not going to lead the meeting tonight. I just want to sit back and enjoy the meeting. So I'm going to get the associate pastor to lead the meeting. It was, it was about three or four, it wasn't big crusade meetings. It was just three or four hundred people. And he sat in the back row, but he was sitting next to a man who I learned afterwards was a man that had fallen and was very seriously injured in a building, on a building site, and broke so many bones and, and, and you know, he'd been, uh, he was now crippled and was on permanent disability. He was only a young man, but he was totally crippled, his spine was twisted, his legs were, there was all kinds, he was in such a mess. And he and this man happened to sit beside each other in the second row. And as, as I gave an invitation for, for prayer for healing, and, and for healing, as I, and, I, and I sort of said, now I'm crying now for the power of God to come and release healing in Jesus. The pastor got singed. <laughs> now, most of us, we've not grown up in church like that. Amen. We're so familiar with Jesus that never does anything miraculous that the miraculous Jesus is a stranger to us. Amen. And that's why he could do no great work because of their unbelief. Let's let's say together, God, we hate unbelief. We're going to hate it as much as you do. And if I find it in myself. I will wage war against it. In Jesus' mighty name. Now I've stepped out from that day. I thought I'd rather look stupid than be safe. I've seen incredible miracles take place, but I've also had some spectacular failures. I'd be I'd be lying to you if I didn't tell you that. I'm still learning, but I'm a lot nearer to Jesus's ministry today than I was when I began. And I'm a lot nearer in these last two years than in the previous 30 years. I'm a lot nearer in the last six months than I was in the last two years. The, the rate is accelerating. Now, Jesus said very plainly that if we live in the Father the way that he lived in the Father, then the works that 
he did, we would do, and even greater works than he we were going to do, because he was going to the Father. That's what my Bible says. Does your Bible say that? Well then, why are we not discontent that it's not happening? Now, I'm, I'm not there yet. I wish I was, but, ever, but I'm a lot nearer now than I was. And particularly in the last two years. Because this is what America needs. It needs a breakthrough in this region. God said to me that he hated the AIDS virus and what it was doing to homosexual people. Now they are suffering the judgment of their sin. That's true. But that doesn't mean that God's enjoying it. Listen to He compassionately longs to deliver them from this thing. So he commissioned me to pray for people with, with AIDS and that I, I would see them healed. And then they would turn to Jesus. See, there's no greater evangelist to homosexuals than someone who's been powerfully delivered from AIDS is now powerfully converted. Now, everybody that I pray for with AIDS has been healed. And they've turned to Jesus and become a real on fire for Jesus believer. I was in, um, in Zagreb. You know where Zagreb is? It's the capital of Slovenia. One of the former Balkan... I was there just about three weeks ago. One of the former Balkan countries. There's a man there who, who was a Bosnian Muslim married to a Slo... Uh, uh, I'm sorry, a Croatian. A Croatian uh, Catholic. And this Croatian Catholic married this Bosnian Muslim. Both of them were just nominal and they got powerfully converted. Now he was the main... Um, mafia guy and he was running the drug racket for the whole of that great capital city of Zagreb in, 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 in Croatia. He got powerfully converted with his wife. Started a church. And I went there not just over a month ago and in the meeting when they began to hear what was happening in the meetings we had drug addicts come pouring into the meetings and on the Saturday night we had somewhere between 15 and 20 young people, men, all of them were men actually, no women, who were high on heroin when they came into the meeting. Wow. Now I've worked in drug and alcohol rehabilitation centers. I've watched people go, I come off cold turkey. It's three weeks of misery normally and you have to hold them in prayer while they go through this torturous experience and they have sweats and, and flashes and, and oh man they go through such agony. But you hold them there by your prayers but it's a miserable, terrible three weeks and then they finally become detoxified. I watched that whole process take place in three minutes. Every one of these heroin addicts, high on heroin, was delivered. That was on, no, it was on the Friday night. They came to all the meetings on Saturday. They were there on Sunday. They were totally transformed, absolutely free, and they're never going back. I thought, oh God, we need this in America. I shared a conference in Duisburg, Germany, with a Nigerian whose name was Sunday Adelaja. Some of you may have heard of him. He's getting a bit well known. He's got, and he was a, a, a young student in Lagos, Nigeria in 1987 while communism was still standing. They were offering scholarships to promising young men with the hope of brainwashing them into communism and using them as their agents to spread communism in Africa. Yes. So he got a scholarship to go to Kiev University in 1987, but just before he went, just less than six months before he went, he was impacted by the Nigerian revival. 
powerfully converted and this new convert not even six months old in Christ goes to Kiev all on his own to this citizen of atheistic communism and to the university but he's not overcome by the darkness he overcomes the darkness yes. Yes. He's a bold, incredible, powerful evangelist. He, he trains as an engineer, works as an engineer for a number of years, but then he leaves engineering and starts a church. He's fluent in Russian by this time. And that church in Kiev has just crossed, in 10 years, it's crossed the 25,000 mark. He told me as we were, we had a great time together and he's asked me to go to his church. But, but he told me and he's got, got this sort of instinct in his spirit and I've got the word that puts it together yes. <laughs> but he told me in his church he's got more than 8,000 former alcoholics and drug addicts who are all totally transformed by the power of God now I want our prayers to do this sort of stuff amen and I'm, I can assure you it can. It's a praying church. Mm. Amen. And if we will learn these principles and practice them, we're going to see the same results. Because I tell you, God's passionate about this. Yes. Alright, let's go back to Matthew 6. I've almost finished my introduction. <laughs> but we will go on tomorrow morning. Come to Matthew 6. And you will find from verse 5 through all the way down actually to verse 15 he's dealing with the subject of prayer he says there are three things which we have to stop doing let's just notice what they are in verse 5 when you pray you must not be like the hypocrites now the word hypocrite is actually a Greek word that's just transliterated into English the word is hypocrites and it, what, what it means in its original form is it's a play actor it hasn't got the nasty connotation that it has in English. Oh, he's a hypocrite. No, he's a, a real hypocrite, a, according to the classic Greek word, is someone who's acting a part sincerely, temporarily, which is not them. Wow. Otherwise, if you're going to take part in a play, you learn the part very earnestly, you put on the right costume, put on the right makeup, and you get on stage, and for two hours, you do your best to convey to the audience the person that you're representing it's totally sincere your, your heart's in it but the trouble is it's not really you and when you step off the stage you take off that costume take off that makeup and you're no longer the person you were trying to represent temporarily for two hours you were playing a part now the trouble is that much of Christianity does the same thing on Sunday morning we come to church we sing songs we're victorious, we stamp on the devil, we, we believe all the stuff, but for two hours on Sunday, once we leave church, we take off the dress and makeup of a victorious Christian, and we live in defeat for the rest of the week until we come back to church again the next Sunday. And he said, don't be like the hypocrites. Be real. And above all, don't let your prayer, in that sense, be hypocritical. It's so easy to learn the language of the kingdom without being in the power of the kingdom. It's so easy to sing the songs we sing, to learn the vocabulary, and to put on a good act. Not with any nasty intent, but it's just what we've learned in church. We do things that don't relate to real life. And in our prayer life, we must not be hypocritical. If, if you're feeling bad, say so to the Lord. 
If you've got unbelief, say, Lord, I've got unbelief. I hate it. You hate it. Please take it out of the way. Come on. Let's get real. We've got about it. The second thing he says, don't do it before men. And I could spend some time on that, but it's, I think that's simple enough to understand, isn't it? Don't do it to impress people. What people think of you is not important. It's what God thinks of you that's important. And the third thing he says in verse 7 is, don't use vain repetition. Because the heathen do that and they think they're going to be heard for their much asking. Now there is a place for persistence in prayer, but that's not the same as vain repetition. There are certain things which have to be moved by what I call battering ram prayers. But every, every attack is an attack of faith. And each time you hit it, there's a crack coming which finally brings the thing down. But just saying the same thing over and over again without faith is, is wasting your time. So don't use vain... Don't think you're going to be hurt for your much asking. Why? I pray for my father for 25 years. Well, how much did you pray for him in faith? My wife Eileen, I mean, both her parents were not Christian. She was the first in her family to get converted. All her sisters and all the husbands, and finally her parents all got saved. But her battle, her father was a real battle. He was now diagnosed with cancer. He hadn't got long to live. She was preaching at a conference in Gdansk in northern Poland at the time. And she was preaching on the power of generational transmission, of how our kids are on fire for Jesus. We've got grandchildren on fire for Jesus. And you can pass it down from generation to generation. Which is a tremendous truth. But then the Lord said, what about the other way? So she turned around and there was her dad. And she said, on that moment, on that stage in uh, platform in Poland, she got her dad by faith. And she said, I've got him! <laughs> now what she did not know was when that cry went up in Gdansk, Poland, her sister had just come to visit her father as a health visitor and she got on her knees before her dad and said, Dad, every else now... Uh, Everybody else in the family except you is going to heaven and you're going to hell if you don't humble yourself and repent. And I can't bear that thought. Oh, Daddy, please repent. And it broke his heart and he gave his life to Jesus. And that was happening in England while Ali had possessed him by faith in Gdansk, Poland. It was the same moment of time. Isn't that fantastic? Now, she prayed for her dad for years. But it was the prayer of faith that got him. Can you hear what I'm saying? Alright, now let's go to verse 6, which we'll close with for tonight. Maybe, I think we might even do it tomorrow morning. I don't know how long you want me to go on for. Come to verse 6. Here now, having got rid of the wrong way to pray, let's go to verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room, and when you shut your door, pray to your Father. What it literally says in the Greek is, pray to your Father who already is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. In other words, the beginning of an effective prayer life is learning to pray on your own. And you will never ever become an effective prayer if you rely on prayer meetings. But in fact, what happens in the prayer meetings will be dependent on what you have learned to be on your own. And I want to just give you an invitation from God, and this is the invitation. Whatever your lifestyle is now, I'm calling you in Jesus' name to set apart one hour every day for the next three months as a real commitment and wherever possible make that 
from that hour, the first hour of the day. Now, you say, well, I can't pray, I don't know how to pray. Listen, the Father knows how to teach you how to pray. The Holy Spirit, we're told in, in Romans 8, verse 26, he says, we don't know how to pray as we ought, but the Holy Spirit helps us. Helps our infirmities. Jesus is, we're told, is the great intercessor. So if Father, Son and Holy Spirit get on your case, you'll learn how to pray. Amen? Don't say, it's not me, I can't do it. Because God's created every human being to be an effective prayer. Because it's, the, it's their source of life. You can't live without it. It's like saying, well, I, I have a problem breathing, so I'm going to stop breathing. If you do, you'll die. You better learn how to breathe or you won't stay alive naturally. You better learn how to pray or you won't stay alive spiritually. And the triune God is, is waiting to teach you and the Father is longing for you to come into the secret place. Just find somewhere. It may be a room of your own. What several guys have done in San Antonio since I taught this, these busy executives, they jump in their car, drive to work an hour early when there's no traffic, so it's much easier, get into the parking lot, put on a post tape for about five minutes, and their car becomes their secret place. And the testimonies of guys whose business wasn't doing too well, now it's prospering. Wayward sons have come back home to dad. Marriages that are about to tear apart have been mended. I tell you, the testimonies are amazing. If you do that for three months, it'll become so much part of you, you'll never want to stop it. Amen? So that's how you begin. Now there was a time when I didn't think I was a prayer. But I tell you, I've been transformed because I've obeyed this scripture. This is what you do. For, you find a secret place, some place of your own. My study is my secret place. My wife and I praying together is not the same thing. She prays and I pray on our own and we have our own secret place. Then we'll come together for prayer. And there are other ways and levels of praying, but this is the foundation. Not tonight, because I, I, we're running out of time, but tomorrow morning I want to teach you what happens when you really learn the, the blessing and the power of that secret place. And when you become a prayer on your own, then we can move to the next stage and then finally to the third stage. And then we'll have the kind of prayer meetings and the kind of powerhouses that will literally transform our society. Well, I'm going to stop. God bless you. Let's stand and let's just pray. Father, we want to thank you in Jesus' name. We thank you for the example of Jesus. We thank you for the teaching of Jesus. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who sent to us to teach us how to pray. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus teaches us and the Father teaches us. Lord, I pray these precious people that have taken the trouble to come out tonight, that they will hear your word, they will receive it, and that here you will birth a movement of prayer that will change this nation. Yes, Lord. Not just this city, although it will do that, but this nation. Hallelujah. Lord, I don't believe that's an exaggerated prayer. I believe it's a prayer you want me to pray because that's your purpose and that's your intention. And we will see the transforming power of God when we learn to pray the right kind of prayers. Lord, deliver us from our religious habits help us to see them and to hate them the way you hate them Lord most of all may we be free from religious chronic unbelief in Jesus name and like little children may we be filled with faith 
And as a result, may we do the works that Jesus did. And even greater works than those. Because he's gloriously and wonderfully gone to the Father. Let there be a powerful practical outflow from this weekend. In the transformation of many lives. The healing of many people. The salvation of multitudes. And the very environment in which we live. Being changed from the, its present darkness until the glory of the light of your kingdom begins to irradiate everything. We ask these things in Jesus' mighty and wonderful name. Amen. God bless you. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Amen. It's one thing I love about Brother Allen, you just feel challenged. When I'm, I'm so glad that we get challenged, aren't you? How many of you? You know, unless you're challenged, you don't ever move. Praise God. So I want to encourage you tomorrow to be on First Assembly, and uh, we're going to just continue to be taught and have the Word of God impact our life. The Word says, be a doer of the Word, not a hearer only. Amen. Deceiving your own selves. How many of you know we don't want to be deceived? Amen. So we're going to do what's been taught. We're going to put it to application in our life by the help of God, by the grace of God, and by the strength of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God. Thank you, Lord. Brother James, why don't you come and dismiss us in prayer? Brother Rich, you want to grab the pulpit? Yeah. And uh, he's going to come and preach the word. This man's teachings have revolutionized my life and my ministry. And uh, I know that as you open up your heart uh, to the, the pure word of God that comes forth, it'll change your life and it'll change your family. It'll change everything else. Amen. So welcome, Apostle Alan Vincent. We're glad you're here. Amen. Let's give him a hand. Matthew 6, I hope you were here last night. If you weren't, then you're going to have to start to catch up with us. So Matthew 6 and verse 6. I want to spend a little bit of time on what Jesus is really saying here because this is the foundation on which everything else gets built. And if you don't get the foundation right and everything else is shaky. Amen? And there's lots of prayer ministries and lots of prayers who haven't got the foundation right and therefore the thing shakes. So I'm going to spend, I just was praying this morning, God said you've got to make sure people have really got this because if they get this, the rest of it will follow. If they don't get this, then it's not going to work. So let's listen to what Jesus said. We saw last night we, we saw last night that um, Jesus had to teach religious people how to stop praying the wrong way before he could teach them to pray the right way. Amen? Now in Matthew 6, verse 6, he, he's laying the foundation for the kingdom. This is his first real great teaching on the kingdom. And right there in the beginning, he's saying, now look guys, you're going to have to learn three things. How to give, 
how to pray and how to fast in a kingdom way. And verse 6 of chapter 6 is the key on prayer, which is our subject this particular weekend. And what, he's, what he says is, here is this. And when you pray, go into, do not, uh, when you pray, go into your room. And when you shut the door, pray to your Father. And what it literally says in the Greek, who is already there, waiting in the secret place. So what, I mean, we just sang um, those incredible songs, and that wasn't that dance fantastic? Wasn't it incredible? But I mean, it, but it, it just, you see, that's the God that wants to meet with you. It, it's staggering, but it's true. The one who is worthy of all glory and all honor and all praise, who flung the stars into space, who just spoke and all of creation came into existence. That's the one who says, I want to meet with you in the secret place. Now, if you got a letter today from President Bush saying, look, I really want to just spend an hour with you just to talk about the nation and get you to pray for the nation, how many of you would somehow find time to do it? Amen? You'd reorganize everything. Now, I'm telling you that someone, wonderful as that man is, thank God for him, there's someone a thousand, thousand times greater than him who's saying, I want to meet with you and I'm prepared to give you my undivided attention. If you'll just take the trouble to meet with me, I'm going to be there waiting for you. And I said last night, and just in case you weren't here last night, I really mean it, that I have a mandate from God particularly in the United States of America, to go around and say, look, if you will give one hour a day, and it mustn't be 15 minutes. I did it once in one church. The pastor said, well, if you can't manage an hour, 15 minutes will do. I said, no, brother, it won't. Because you don't get disconnected from the world and connected for God in 10 minutes. It must be an hour. And that, I'm not saying that. God's saying that. Because it takes that long for, for you to start to be able to tune in to God and for God to really communicate with you. So it's got to be an hour. Now I'm not saying that, God's saying that. If you will do that for, for one hour every day for three months, make a commitment to do that. And wherever possible, make it the first hour of the day. And if you will faithfully do that, I promise you at the end of those three months, those, you'll be so changed you won't want to stop. It really is that simple. It really is. And I've got a, a, you know, a file full of testimonies from people that have just been obedient to that simple thing. Now let's go on now, this morning, to learn why God wants this time and what happens when we give the time. The first thing I want you to notice is that Jesus talks about meeting your Father in the secret place. And I may have to spend the whole first session on this, but if you get it, then that will be transforming. Many, many people have come to know Jesus as their Savior, and a, a lot more Christians have had an experience of the Holy Spirit, and they have a, a theology about the Father, but they've never really met the Father. And I want you to be honest about that, as to whether you really have or you really haven't met the Father. Some people, because of their natural experience of fatherhood, it may be totally absent or it may be very painful. 
they really don't have a real understanding of what God the Father is like and what real fatherhood is like. And he may have to totally teach you what it's like. In my case, it wasn't that I had a bad father. I had a father that was so totally taken up with his career and he was a rather shy, shut-in sort of person. And I don't think I ever, ever had an intimate conversation with my father. He was a, a nice man. He was a, a faithful provider for the family and all the rest of it, but I never really knew him. And so when I grew up, that was the only fatherhood I knew, so that was the kind of fatherhood that I lived. And then God, when I came to know the fatherhood of God, I realized how I cheated my kids. But the trouble was they were already in their teens. And I went to them and I apologized. And you see, This is the irony. I'm now known around the world as this amazing father, but I tell you, I learned every particle of it from, the, from God. I never learned it from my natural dad. But if you will let the Spirit, and one of the passions of the Spirit, which comes so, so frequently, in, particularly in the, the upper room discourse of Jesus, I mean, the, the Sermon on the Mount is his first great ministry, the upper room discourse is his last great opportunity to talk to his disciples. John particularly spends five chapters on that upper room discourse, and you really need to soak yourself in it until it becomes reality to you. And you will find in those chapters, John 13 through 17, he talks about the Holy Spirit more than 100 times. He's talking about the coming of the Spirit, not just being an event when you learn to speak in tongues, wonderful as that is, but it's a total transformation of life. And he gives us a list of things in John which will happen when the Spirit comes. And there again, as you read all that through, the major thing that happens is that the Spirit's got a great passion and Jesus has a great passion for the Spirit to show us the Father. Can I have your attention, please? Come on, I just feel we're getting distracted. Just keep, let's get focused, let's stay in here. Let's not get distracted. What I have to say is very important and I want you to hear it. Excuse me, but I, I really don't want anything fussing around Let's stay focused. If we get this, it's going to change us. It's going to change our, ourselves, our city, our nation. Jesus said in John chapter 16, he said, I've spoken to you about the Father in figurative language, it says, but if you like, in the best words that I can find. But actually, I know that you haven't got it. That's what he's saying. Because you can't get it, really. Not by words of communication. You can only get it by the spirit of revelation. He said, when the Spirit comes, he's going to show you the Father. And it's something beyond words, it's something that happens, it's a direct communication from his Spirit to your Spirit. And when it happens, then you find yourself in a whole new different ball game altogether. Now, I can remember a day, it was in April of 1965, I had just been baptized in the Holy Spirit, God had just begun to visit our church in Bombay. It was just a Baptist church. It started with five people, none of whom were saved. We now got to maybe 100 or so, maybe 200, I forget exactly. We were crying out for God to come, and God said, I can't come unless you're prepared to receive the Spirit. And this was a theological problem for me. I finally got so desperate, I said, I'm even prepared to speak in tongues if I have to. Now, that was a 
insulting way to speak to God, but unfortunately, a lot of the evangelical world has that attitude. I felt it was intellectually weird and beneath my dignity to make these strange and weird noises. Anyway, God sorted that out years ago, and I began to speak in tongues, but it was a, it was a problem to get through those intellectual barriers. Now, like the Apostle Paul, I thank God I speak in tongues more than any of you. And, 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 and listen, because see, it's not enough to have had an experience at your baptism in the Spirit. It, to me, speaking in tongues is one of the most powerful and important things that I do every day. And, and let me just digress here for a moment, because it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 4, it says, he that speaks in an unknown tongue edifies himself. That's what it says. The word edify, the Greek word, is the word hoikodomeo, which means literally to build a house. It's not education, it's what happens is that if you speak in an unknown tongue, your spirit man gets bigger and bigger, and as a result, God, who can only live in the spirit, he finds a bigger and bigger place of residence to live in. Now, the, now the, tr the trouble in the Western world is that we take a lot of trouble to develop our bodies, a lot of trouble to develop our intellect, but there's nothing on any university curriculum to teach you how to develop your spirit. And you have to recognize that, that spiritually, in the Western world, we're pygmies. We're little, undeveloped little babies that don't have a clue about the spirit world. Now, if you go to a, a nation like Africa or India, they have a highly developed spirit awareness, and it's usually been the wrong source, but at least the spirit world's real to them. In fact, they have great experience of the spirit world. And so when they get powerfully converted, then that, that ability to move in the spirit realm is much greater because they already have a developed spirit uh, ability. Now, if we will let God do the same thing for us, because we're, let's agree that we're lopsided people. We've had, some of us have had well-developed intellect, some of us have, we've taken a lot of trouble to develop our body physically and to keep fit and all these other good things, but then, but spiritually we haven't got a clue. Now, if you just speak in tongues and do it again as a discipline, just do it, you'll find it gets richer and richer and richer and more and more powerful. I mean, I don't know what goes on half the time when I'm speaking in tongues, but my spirit knows what's going on. If I did understand, it wouldn't be biblical. Because it tells me that speaking in tongues is a mystery. I speak mysteries to God in the Spirit. It tells me that the mind is unfruitful. And it tells me that no man understands me. So it's got to fulfill those three categories to be real. And I've had people say to me, well, I don't see the point of tongues. Well, that doesn't matter. You're not God, you're just a little man. So just get humbled enough. To believe God, then God knows what he's talking about. Amen? And the more you say, I want, if, if you're a, a, a Pentecostal that's had a baptism, I want it to be a present fire within you. Speak in tongues. And, and, and then the Spirit will be able to show you things. This particular morning, in April in 1965, having just been baptized in the Holy Spirit, the Spirit came to me in my study in the manse of this Baptist church and he showed me the Father and I went absolutely nuts. I mean, I was a respectable British Baptist until then. <laughs> then I went nuts. I, I, I went round my study 
dancing around saying, saying, he loves me, he loves me, he loves me. I just could not get over the fact of the revelation of the personal father love that Almighty God has for Alan Vincent. Now, it began then, but it was like stepping into a river of God's father love, which has gone on increasing all these, well, it's, it's approximately 40 years now. Now, it's got richer and deeper, but there was a moment when it began. And it doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman, you desperately need the revelation of God's Father love, because it, it's the fatherhood of God which gives you worth and value. It's the fatherhood of God that gives you endorsement. It's the fatherhood of God that gives you the, the encouragement and the support to go out and do something and be something for him. Whether you're a man or whether you're a woman, and you desperately need that revelation. And if you've had a bad experience of fatherhood in the natural, or you have no experience of fatherhood in the natural, all the more reason that you should now have the true revelation from God. Now John, in his old age, recognizing the great need of the church in the third generation of the church, he spends a great deal of time in his gospel and in his writings about the fatherhood of God. He talks about the father more than 200 times. Mark, who's a young guy that's just writing the gospel of Mark in his relatively young age, he mentions the father four times. That's interesting, isn't it? Luke mentions the father 35 times and Matthew mentions the father 15 times. The apostle Paul, who's the other great apostle of revelation he talks about the father almost 150 times now that's interesting because these guys have realized that if you're going to build a church that's going to go anywhere and do anything they must have this revelation of the father and it cannot come with words even jesus couldn't teach it with words he could talk about it with words but he knew it was that these were like seeds inside their spirit which could not germinate until the spirit came and showed it to them he said i'm sowing these words in your heart but it won't really work for you until you get spiritual revelation of what i've just said to you and that's how i feel this morning I feel if this bomb goes off and you really get this, you're going to be transformed in a way that you cannot possibly even imagine right now. Amen? Now, the passion of God is not to save souls. The passion of God is to mend the broken relationship between God in his fatherhood and man in his sonship. Now, let that sink in and hear me, please. Salvation is a means to that end. But the end is that there should be a perfect reconciliation of man to God. And God has chosen to reveal himself to man in terms of fatherhood, and he's chosen that man should relate to him in terms of sonship. Now once again, let me say the word son in the Greek language, it does not have a gender. In English it sounds very masculine. But in Greek it isn't. In fact, there has to be a prefix put on the front to make it masculine or feminine. So God has male and female sons. The word daughter is not known in the Greek language. It's just male and female sons. Okay? And here's the reason. Because uh, actually there are, there are ten words to describe the parent-child relationship in the Greek language. And they all represent different phases of spiritual development. It starts off 
with what's called a brephos, which is a baby in the womb or a baby at the breast. And it's the same word in Greek. How interesting. So as far as God's concerned, when it's in the womb, it's a child. And it's no different to a child at the breast. So if you think you can kill a baby in the womb, then you also think you can kill a baby at the breast. Now, one would be atrocious murder in the crazy nation in which we live. The other is okay. But in the sight of God, it's the same thing. Then you come to Nepios, which is the word for a little toddler running around in his diapers, going da-da, da-da, da-da. It knows how to holler when it's got a need, but it never provides for itself. If, it need, if it's hungry, it doesn't go fix itself food. It hollers till dad comes and gives it food. If it dirties its diapers, then it hollers until somebody comes and cleans up the mess. Now that's okay when they're newborn, but you don't want a 20-year-old son behaving like that. Amen? We want to get the kids off the bottle and weaned onto meat and very quickly learning to look after themselves. Amen? Now the trouble is, the kind of pastoring that many pastors go in for, they produce a permanent uh, church of babies. Now it's sometimes the pastor's fault, it's sometimes the people's fault. Like the church in Corinth, Paul says to the church in Corinth, he said, I've had to go on treating you like babes, because if I try and give you meat, you just spit it out. So I'm still having to give you bottles of milk, and I can't bring you into that warring, city-taking church that I want you to become. Now, this is not my subject, but there's a, there's a good set of tapes that you need to read and, or, or listen to. One is, it's called this, it says, sons can change their world, babies can't do anything. And it's possible to be an individually a babe, it's possible for a whole church to be in babyhood, and as a result it can have no impact upon its society. Then you come to this word, paideon, which is the word that most people don't like. Paideon is the word which is from three years age to about, well, to, to early te teenage, say, say three to twelve. Paideon is the word of being under discipline. It comes from the verb paiduo, and paiduo means to strike once with the hand or with a blunt instrument for the purposes of discipline or correction. In other words, if you're naughty, it's biblical to smack. Whatever the law says. Hello. But it's not for the purpose of venting your anger, it's for the purpose of loving correction. And you don't do it in a bad temper, you do it once in love for the purpose of bringing correction. And that's the way God fathers us. If we're naughty, he will smack us. And the purpose of the smack is to lovingly correct us, to bring us into life. Now, these are all principles which are great in the natural, but they are, their root and origin is in the spiritual. So if I'm pastoring people, if I'm fathering people, I have to follow the same principles. So there's a period which ought to begin at least by the age of three, where children learn that it's painful not to obey. And it's a proper and appropriate to respect and submit to authority. Now these are the basic principles. And furthermore, is to have a good attitude. The attitude is far more important than the action. Because if a child obeys outwardly and does the right thing, but inwardly is in rebellion, then you've got a problem. If a child accidentally does the wrong thing with good intent, then you don't punish them for that. Because they meant well. 
I know a story where this kid got home from school much earlier than her mum and her mum was working and she was coming in through the snow so the kid took her mum's slippers and put them in the oven to warm them up for her. Ruined the slippers. But her, her intent was love. So you don't smack a kid for that. You know, why you clean up that filthy mess in the oven? You say, well you meant well, thank you for wanting to love me in this way. So you don't smack him for that. Amen? That would be totally wrong, even if you do feel a bit mad that they've just ruined your slippers. So God's always... Amen? And you come through a principle where, where you learn that even though you don't know everything, even though you're immature, you get kids to the place where they know it's necessary and it's good to obey the authority over them, their father and any other authority that's over their life. And by the time you've got them to teenage, the smacking phase should be completely over. They should be wanting it as much as you do. If it's done in love and if it's done purposefully, you get kids to the place where they, they love to. In fact, Paul writes this in Philippians 2, verses 12 through 14. He said, as you have obeyed in my presence, obey much more in my absence. If you've got kids that are doing that, you've got obedience. Imagine going away for the weekend and the kids, uh, and the kids are more obedient to what you tell them to do when you're not there than, than you are when they're there. Now you've got the principles right in their heart. Then we come to the place called Techno, which is a teenager, basically. And, and a Technon is someone who has learned the principles of obedience, and you don't have to smack them, but they are immature and still need instruction and discipline to bring them to full maturity. But the word is enough. Now that's where you ought to get your kids, by the way, time they're 12. And in the spirit, that's how you need to grow up your sons. And in the spirit, that's how God grows us up. You'll notice that Paul had a number of sons, but all of them, actually in the Greek, the word is technon, like Timothy, Titus, Epaphroditus, all these guys were, were Paul's technons, which meant that he wasn't going to be messing around, smacking them, because see, he's an apostle that wants to bring forth other apostles. Now, it's not his job to be dealing with babies. His job is to be taking hold of young men and with great potential and bringing them to the fullness of their ministry. Now, when I saw that, I learned a principle. Because, oh, I love to be your son. Well, if they're still dirtying their diapers and wanting to live on bottles, I, frankly, I haven't got time for them. Because there's only so many that you can father in an intimate way. And they've got to have got the principles of obedience already well established in their spirit. So I just speak a word to them and they do it. Have you got that? Do you understand that principle? And so these are all great principles of bringing people up. Then you come to the, the, the word which I'm gradually getting to, which is the word huios. This is the word of sonship. And this is the only word used about the Lord Jesus concerning his father, because this was, he was a mature son. And the word huios has got three dimensions to it. Number one, it speaks of a grown-up adult mature son. And in the culture of the Bible, that would mean you attained to the age of 30. You were not given full adult rights in society till you came to the age of 30. You couldn't vote, for example. You couldn't participate in any kind of governmental structure like the elders of a city or anything else. You could not sit as a person having authority until you had attained to the age of 30 because you were not considered to be ready for it. 
So the 30th birthday was a very, very important birthday. It was the birthday when you came out into full-grown adult maturity. The second dimension of this word huios is father-likeness. We have a, 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 a what's the word I want? Uh, an idiom in in England, I think you use it here. We talk about someone being a chip off the old block. Do you use? In other words, he's just like his dad. Now. The, the purpose is not only should you grow up but, but you grow up into father likeness now in the case of Jesus he obtained in his humanity he obtained all these great qualities by, great, by 30 years of obedience to the law God the father had been looking all his all of man's existence for a man that he could legally and righteously call his son but no man or woman ever qualified because they all failed to pass the requirements because the requirement was that if you were going to become a huios of your father, a son of your father, you had to serve him faithfully for 30 years. Because the final and perhaps the most important dimension of the word huios has to do with inheritance. In fact, sometimes it's translated as heir. The same word huios is translated as heir, heir in the New Testament. But you wouldn't know that for, for, uh, unless you read the Greek. Because this is the third meaning. It, see, when a father had children, he had the option to designate them to be his huios. It wasn't automatic. He could take certain children, or he could take all his children, and he could say, when you come to the age of maturity, you will become my huios. You will become my son. And what they had to do in order to qualify was they had to serve him faithfully for 30 years and if on the 30th birthday he was well pleased with them then and they came into their inheritance not when father died you didn't have to wait for father to die there was an inheritance you came to at the age of 30 which was your grown-up adult mature son inheritance you got another inheritance at your father's death and at your father's death you got certain things but at, 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 the, at the mature son for example, if you ran a business and you designated your son as a huios, when you came to your 30th birthday, you came into partnership with your father in the business. If you owned a farm, a working farm, then at the age of 30, you became a co-owner with your father of the farm and you began to work with him. You came into your inheritance. And everyone who was designated a huios shared in equal partnership in the farm and it was normal at that age for the father then to retire and it was up to the kids to keep him for the rest of his life. I told my kids this biblical principle. I gave them their inheritance at 30 because I, I did. I gave them a, a significant financial inheritance so that they were able to pay off their mortgages and things like that because at 30 you need that sort of money not when, you, not when your dad dies because usually you're pretty well off yourself by then <laughs> Amen? So I, I obey these principles I'm not imposing on anybody by law but I'm saying there are wise things which we could do to learn from God Okay, so Jesus now became a man truly a man. The, the humanity in which he lived was identical to the humanity which Adam had 
before he sinned. Each of them had innocent but temptable humanity. Amen? They were both temptable, but the difference between the life of Adam and the life of Jesus was the different response they made to temptation. And the different decision they made regarding independence. It wasn't so much the issue of sin, it was the issue of independence. The devil did not try and get Adam and Eve to sin. He got them to step out from total submitted obedience to the Father. Why did you step out and just be independent? You can become like God. You don't have to live under God's rule. You can become like God by developing the potential resources within yourself. So it was the lie of self-realization as opposed to God-dependence, which was the issue. And every false religion, including much of Christianity, teaches the same lie. The aspirations of the religion are noble, but the power to get there is to discover within yourself divine resources, which frankly are not there, it's a lie. So the moment you step out from total, total God-dependence into self-sufficiency, independence if you like, you step out of the kingdom into self-sufficiency and immediately you become vulnerable to the devil. And once the devil's got you out of the kingdom, because the kingdom is God's will being done perfectly, that's what the kingdom is. And for the kingdom to come on earth, God's will on earth has got to be done perfectly, just like it is in heaven. The reason that heaven is heaven is because it's a place where God's will is done. That's what makes heaven heaven. You cannot have heaven without perfect obedience to God's will because it would immediately become hell. Heaven doesn't exist except in the atmosphere of total, complete submission and obedience to the will of the Father. He's perfect love, he's perfect power, he's perfect wisdom, he's perfect everything. So to go from that perfection to your own self-submission is to go to, into imperfection. Now Adam and Eve unfortunately listened to the lie of the devil and stepped out of the kingdom. While they were in the kingdom, the devil couldn't touch them. And because they were ruling over all of creation, the devil couldn't touch creation either. So while they submitted to the Father's rule, there was no point of penetration for the devil. And as a result, he could only watch outside of God's creation in all its purity, in all its perfection. And he couldn't mess it up at all. The key was to get... Adam out of the kingdom. Once he came out from under the rule and government of God, he became vulnerable then to devil control. And the devil took over his life and through him he spoiled and ruined all of creation. So death and sickness and sin and all these terrible, horrible things which cover the earth today, they all came because man stepped out from under the rule and the government of God. And they wouldn't be there had it not been for that, that tragic decision to become independent. So I want you to see that independence is far worse than sin. Because independent is the root, sin is the fruit. When you start to see that, you begin to realize that we've been preaching the gospel a bit around the wrong way. Like people say, oh yes, he's received Jesus as his saviour, but he's not made him his Lord. That's a total contradiction. Jesus cannot save people that are living in independence. 
And every part of your life and my life which is independent is still happy hunting ground for the devil. The devil can do what he likes with anybody who's living in independence and they'll end up, that area will become sinful. But Jesus made a totally different decision. He came to earth and entered in the mystery of the incarnation. Almighty God somehow squeezed himself into the boundaries and limitations of a human personality and a human, uh, a human body, just like the p body and the personality that Adam had. And all he had from that day to communicate to, in the spirit realm with his Father and with the Holy Spirit was, was the power of his human spirit. Although he was the fullness of God, dwelling bodily in that body, for 33 and a half years, not for one second did he draw on the power of his deity. If he had done, he would have made his saviourhood illegal, because it wouldn't have been man saving man, it would have been God saving man, and that was not possible. It had to be from within the human race that salvation came. Do you understand that? So Jesus made a decision. He made a decision that I will always, always, always do the will of my Father. It was the decision of rugged determination. You see, the decision of rugged determination is much more powerful than the, than, than the, the relationship of innocence. He set his will to obey the Father and he set his will never, ever, ever to give in to any temptation. He stayed inside the kingdom of God, under the rule of his father, never ventured out from that relationship, and therefore the devil could never touch him. His invincibility as a man was not because of his deity, it was because of his obedient humanity. Amen? Now when you get that, you begin to see this. Now he lived for 33 and a half years, but the first 30 years he had to go through the process of qualifying to be the first human son that God ever had who fulfilled the conditions to become a son. That's why for 30 years he just lived to obey the Father. He didn't do anything else, he never did a miracle, never did anything supernatural, he just lived for 30 years saying yes Father, yes Father, yes Father, yes Father, because he had to fulfill the conditions of sonship by the power of the law, in order to make it available to us by faith. So you can imagine the excitement as he drew towards his 30th birthday. He'd been watching the devil at work all over the world, messing people up, wrecking things, but he couldn't do anything about it because his time had not yet come. But as it ticked through to his 30th birthday, you can imagine how with great joy he rushed to Jordan, to be baptized of John. Now the baptism of Jesus was not to wash away his sins because he didn't have any. It wasn't to crucify the old man because he didn't have one. The whole purpose of baptism was total identification, total immersion into Adam's race. It was like the first part of a marriage ceremony. Father said to Jesus, will you have sinful, fallen, humanity, Adam's race from the beginning to the end as your bride and he said oh yes father I will, I will marry her and I will cleanse her and, 
and wash her from every spot and wrinkle, any such thing, and I will present her to myself as a glorious bride without any of these things. But I'll marry her in this mess, and by my blood, and by my word, I'm going to clean her up to make the most beautiful and wonderful bride that there ever was or ever could be. It was a marriage ceremony. It was identification. He became part of Adam's race by baptism. Now when we come to baptism, we complete the ceremony. Will you have this man to be your lawfully wedded husband? We must be nuts to say no. And by baptism, you not only marry this glorious one, but you also become the inheritor by marriage of all the resources that he has. And thirdly, you don't any longer have the hereditary of Adam, you now have the hereditary of Jesus Christ. I mean, I could, I could teach for a week just on that one statement, but, but just let it sink in. Amen? Let it sink in. Now, the way that Jesus lived for those 33 and a half years was to live in total intimacy with the Father. When he came to that moment of his 30th birthday, having perfectly obeyed his Father, then the Father could cry with great delight, This is my beloved Son. At last I've got a man. In whom I'm well pleased. And now I can legally and righteously confer on him all the full rights of sonship, which is that all that I have and all that I am is now given to him as a free gift, and, and this is a man I'm giving it to. So for the first time ever in the history of humanity, there's a man on earth who can rightfully draw on all the power and all the resources of heaven, and he can joyfully use them to destroy every facet and every particle of the work of the evil one. Amen? Now you can imagine that when this great day came, the day of Jesus' 30th birthday, he had fulfilled all righteousness. You read all about this in Galatians chapter 4, by the way. It says there that the Spirit was sent to show us these things, and he's called the Spirit of adoption of sons. It tells us in Galatians 3, verse 26, that you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Because what we're told in the book of Hebrews and many other places is that Jesus was the pioneer and the completer of our faith. He's the trailblazer, will be a good translation. He hacks away through the jungle a way that no man has ever been before, but he hacks that trail through, not just for his own convenience, to provide a way for you and me to follow in his footsteps and enter into all that he's obtained. So he not only did it for himself, he did it for us. If you read Hebrews 2 from verse 9 through to verse uh, 14, well, to the end of the chapter, 14 particularly, you get a list of all the things that he accomplished in order to bring us into what he had accomplished. So that you and I don't have to go through a 30-year obeying the law because in Christ we step into it and become the beneficiaries of what he's obtained on our behalf. So you can step in by faith. But he had to earn it 
through the law. He was born of a woman. He was born under the law to redeem those that were either cursed by being part of Adam who, who, or who were cursed by being unable to keep the law. It works equally for both of us. So I come into sonship by faith. You're all sons of God through faith in Christ. So there comes a day when this dawns on me. Now let's go back to this time of intimacy with the Father. See, when you shut the door and get into that secret place, and, it's, and, and don't go there with a shopping list. In fact, probably for the first few weeks of this, you better let God talk to you and you just shut up and keep quiet. But a real prayer time is a two-way street. You sit there with your Bible, waiting for him to speak to you, and waiting for him to show you things, and there's a communication between you and Father. It's a there are, of course, occasions when he will tell you what to pray and what to pray for in order that you might receive a powerful and immediate answer. But there's certain things he's got to teach us before we even know how to pray. One of the first things we're going to have to learn is intimacy with the Father. We've got to come to know the Father. And once we come to know the Father, he will then instruct us about what it's like to truly and really be his son. Until you come to sonship. Until you see from Scripture, and you're totally convinced in your spirit, that God has brought you into the identical relationship, and you are as much God's son by grace as he's God's son by nature. He loves you, the Father loves you, they delight to bring you into the family of God, and they've conferred upon you a sonship which is no different to his. And when that really hits you, it changes everything. Now, let's just get a few things correct here. I've got a few more minutes before I stop, okay? Let's go, first of all, to... John chapter 12. I want you to see something here. Jesus is about to go to the cross and he cannot wait to get there. The cross to him was not a tragedy. The cross to him was a necessary, painful process to bring us into the full riches and full resources of his resurrection life. So he, he don't for goodness sake go all miserable on, on Good Friday. That's a religious nonsense. We know the end of the story. Now, it, it awes us and amazes us that he was prepared to do that, but the purpose was because of the joy that was going to come to him at the other side. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now sat down at the right hand of God. The cross was something that he deliberately provoked at the right time. He made the spirit of death come against him to kill him because it was necessary for him to destroy him by the power of his death. He was totally in charge of the whole thing. They couldn't crucify him a day before and he couldn't keep him on the cross alive a second longer than it was God's purpose. When he completed everything, he just gave up his spirit and was gone. He was totally in charge of his own execution. No man took his life from him. He wasn't the victim of Roman political scheming or Jewish uh, uh, jealousy. He was the perfect Lamb of God who was bruised and treated in this way by a loving Father in order to redeem the whole of the human race. It pleased the Father to bruise him. 
He has put him to death. Amen. It wasn't the Jews or the Romans that killed Jesus. It was the Father. They were just the instrument. And it was a, a joyful agreement between Father and Son that they would do this. The pain for the Father was as immeasurable as it was to the Son. You think of taking your own beloved Son and brutally killing him in order to rescue other people from their sin. Imagine what that must have been like for the Father. But Son, we'll do this together. Yeah, Dad, we'll do glorified. Verse 23 of John 12. Most assuredly, listen to this, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies,